Hey, Workforce Rx listeners, we want you to be the first to know that host Von Tone Quinlevin has a new book out called Workforce Rx, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Times. It's available at a special promotional rate on Amazon, so order your copy now. And visit mastercatalyst.org to learn more about our virtual book launch events. Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. A recent report revealed that there are nearly 1 million unique credentials in the United States when you count all of the degrees, certificates, licenses, badges, and apprenticeships offered by schools, employers, online providers, and others. But how valid are these credentials, and do they actually help someone advance economically? Employers, educators, and learners all want to know. Well, here with us today to address these questions is Scott Cheney, CEO of Credential Engine, whose organization generated the report in question. Credential Engine offers web-based services to make it easy to search, compare, and validate credentials. Scott brings many years of experience on Capitol Hill and at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to this role, and I'm looking forward to getting his insights on this increasingly important area of education and employment. Thanks for joining us today, Scott. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to reconnect. Well, let's start by helping our audience understand more about Credential Engine, how it got started, and whose needs were you trying to meet when you got started? Sure. The start of the organization really dates back now about eight years, and it was started by a couple of foundations that were really trying to focus on, to your question, how do we know which credentials out there are actually any good? How do we know if a degree is better than a certification or a license? How do we know that there's a certificate that isn't the best thing that could actually help someone get a really great job? And part of the problem was that we didn't have any way to be able to compare, let's say in a particular sector, you have an apprenticeship, you may have a two-year degree, you might have a short-term certificate, you might have a four-year degree that might be a license or, or something else. And how do you know which of those are actually good? And how do you know which ones connect to each other? And the problem is that a lot of the systems that provide these credentials keep their own data and they don't share their data in easily comparable ways. So the easy analogy here is Imagine when you were traveling before the days of Travelocity or Expedia, and you wanted to compare a really interesting sounding resort in Hawaii with a motel or a boutique lodge, and you didn't know any of them, and you were going just on the yellow pages. Well, now if you have Travelocity and Expedia, the richness of the information that you can get about all of those gives you much more ability to make an informed decision. We're trying to do the same thing in the education and credentialing space, give people the chance to compare and understand all types of credentials, regardless of who offers them, what level they are, or how much they cost. Well, that's a good overview. And to help our listeners, I, I wonder if you could start with the basics, because you know most listeners understand the concept of degrees, right? And you know, your associate's degrees, your bachelor's, your master's, and on. Mm-hmm. But you have used the credential word as a big umbrella for many other types of 
kind of education paths. And I was wondering if you could just spend a little bit of time explaining, like, what are the dimensions when you're when you're referencing a credential? Like, can a credential have college credit or can it not have college credit? Maybe you could just give us a primer on that. So let's actually use the definition that we've used for the word credential. And really, that is, as you mentioned in your lead in, anything that someone can earn that explains what they've learned and how that learning is able to advance them either in further education or employment. So it can be everything from a high school diploma to a digital badge, to a certificate, to a certification that's given by an industry association, a professional license, or a degree. And in that sense, a degree is really just a type of credential. It's one we know and and we can refer to easily, but honestly, How much do people really understand about what's in an English degree or a two-year associate's program in psychology? We don't really know a lot of detail just from that word of a two-year degree in psychology or a four-year degree in English. We assume that it brings all sorts of value, but really most people know as much about those as they do about a certification or a license or a badge. So we try and remove the idea that just because it's a degree, it has greater value. And just because it's a non-credit credential, it may have lesser value. We actually don't think that's right. And we try and bring essential information about all of those so people can make their best decision about which of those credentials. It might be a four-year degree is the best thing that you need to get for your own career path. It might be that a really good apprenticeship and an industry license is, is what you need in order to advance your own preferences and your own goals. So credential is very broadly used here and is to try and level the playing field a little bit to give people a chance to make their own decisions about the actual value for their own aspirations. You know, in general, when you talk about employment and employment outcomes, in general, I mean, if you aggregate it all up, a four-year degree would out-earn a two-year degree, for example, and so on. But then if you dive more specifically, STEM majors out-earn non-STEM majors. And for example, allied health, you could have associates or certificates in allied health occupations that out-earn bachelor, depending on what kind of bachelor you're taking. So part of the conundrum is that when you're looking at it from an employment lens, the value of each type of education pathway changes. That's right. And and I think it's also important to remember, we've built into our outcome measures years and years and years of cultural expectation and, you know, value expectations about, oh, if you got a four-year degree at so-and-so university, you must be exactly what I'm looking for. So we, we tend to automatically offer higher pay scales for people who have that without really knowing, to your point, someone who has a two-year degree or a certification may be exactly what that employer needs if you just got below it and looked at the skills and the competencies that come with each of those. So I think as we have an opportunity to understand more about what you exactly bring from any one credential and the value it brings to you and your employer in the marketplace, and you price that accordingly, we will probably see some shifting of the historic patterns, probably not a wholesale reversal, 
but you'll see some shifting in the historic patterns about value associated and outcomes associated with different types of credentials. So if we assume that students kind of walk, you know, with their feet or with their their families walk with their checkbook, it makes me wonder why would anybody create a credential that has no industry value, for example. So uh, I'm always fascinated by the phrase industry recognized. Um, I think it's a, a heavily used but often misused and misunderstood phrase, even by industry. If we stop and think about it, industry recognizes all four-year degrees. You may value some of them differently, but we recognize as, a, as an employer that you've got this English degree and you bring certain capabilities maybe to it. But I'm hiring for a, a particular technician position, and I'm looking for someone who has the exact skills. So I, I'm never quite sure what industry valued or industry recognized credential written broadly really means until you start naming, I need someone who has that, uh, you know, CNA credential. I need someone who, and, and even then, we know that there are certain providers of health credentials that are same exact credential in name, but more valued from this provider than that provider, because we think this provider actually does a better job of teaching it. And the students that come out with the credential from that provider actually have better team skills and listening skills and collaboration skills, because that's the way they were taught in that institution, even though they walked out with the exact same credential as another institution that maybe doesn't emphasize some things better. So industry valued, industry recognized is always a bit of a, of a struggle for me when we talk about it too broadly. Um, that doesn't help answer your question. I, I think people create credentials because they think they're going to get people to take them. And there's a lot of organizations that create credentials and market them with the hopes that their name and their promise that it'll have some sort of industry value and employment outcomes will get them to go spend their money with with me instead of someone else. And we also know in talking to lots of community colleges, and you know this having come out of the, the background that you have, there's a lot of community colleges that offer programs because people just love them. You know, we have a community college here in the, in the Washington DC area that offers a certificate in historic architecture. And people take it because they wanna be able to walk around DC and understand the history of certain buildings but they're never going to get employed with it. And they know that, but they take it because it's a personal interest. So I think there's value in having offerings that are both industry and non-industry recognized. But we also need to understand that even in that industry recognized space, it's really more about the specific credential from a specific provider, not the category as a whole. Well, this leads me to my next question, which is about the credentialing jungle. How have you managed to create some order in this uh, credentialing jungle? And uh, how do you help your users understand what's valid? You might want to even start by just explaining what valid means. Right. So first of all, let me explain that we don't do here at Credential Engine is to determine the validity of any particular credential. We're here to bring transparency and to bring a, a common ability to explore credentials to everybody from a high school senior looking to determine their pathway to an unemployed laid off worker who's looking to reskill and get back into employment to an employer who is looking to have some 
understanding of the actual competencies that somebody brings to them based on the credentials they have. So the, the comparison here, again, going back to that travel example, we're not the Expedia or the Travelocity tool that people will actually go look at. We're the set of data that populates Travelocity and Expedia. And, and they're the ones that create that really interesting interface that lets you go find this airline and that resort and that restaurant and that museum you wanna visit. But all the information about the airlines and the restaurants and the resorts lives in a data format that is what we do for education and training. So it's not our job to say that credential from Cal State University is better than that one from Sacramento Community College. It's our job to make sure that the information about both of those is accessible in a web-based format and comparable. And then maybe for Futuro Health or the California Chamber of Commerce or the state of California's Department of Labor to look at that information and be able to make their own determinations about which of those credentials meet their standards to be valid for their purposes. So what we really think about is what does the state or what does the chamber or what does an employer need to know about that credential to be able to make a decision? Is it a good credential or not? Does it meet our needs or not? And then how do we get that data into the hands of them in order to make that determination? Which kind of goes back to your question about the jungle, right? If we know that there's a million credentials in the United States, and we know that every one of those credentials probably has 20, 30, 50, 100 different data points about them in order to be able to make a good determination about its value, that's a massive amount of data that we're trying to wrangle into a new format to let people make better decisions. And that's a hard challenge, but we've been doing it in partnership with states. We've been doing it in partnership with education and training systems. The federal government has been very supportive and very active in this space. So there's a lot of people who are working with us and who we're working with in order to help make this transition of data from old formats, PDFs and websites into this new format that helps people be able to compare across the entire space. Well, having uh, headed up the data and tech division of, of the community colleges here in California, in addition to doing the workforce side, I have great appreciation when anyone is working on data systems and bringing together data in a clean and quality way. It's one of those things where somebody does the legwork for years and years, and one day it just becomes part of the fabric of how we all do what we do. So thank you very much, Scott, for doing this legwork. Yeah. Um, just a clarification question. So you, you talk about transparency. So let's say I'm a, an employer confused by kind of the panoply of credentials out there that even have the same name, right? And in the past, what I would do is I'd hire somebody and that person came from a particular college, love that, I'll go back to the same college. So that's how that kind of behavior pattern got established. So if we can have this data and are able to be more inclusive and cast a wider net, wh where do you see things going in terms of tools that could be made available in the future for the chambers and the, and the employers to cast a wider net? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, Actually, the reason that Wes Bush, who was the former CEO of Northrop Grumman, 
was such an active proponent of starting this organization and doing this work because exactly as you just said, he knew that you could get great engineers from MIT, Stanford, Purdue, name the top 15 engineering programs in, in the country. But he also knew that you were probably getting then kind of similar thinking about how things should be done. And you may be losing some of that diversity of thought by being able to tap into other programs that had great engineering um, you know, offerings, but weren't on Northrop Grumman's radar. So what Wes always saw was the ability to have a universal search of all engineering programs in the United States and probably the world, look for those programs that had an exact match with the skill requirements that Northrop had, and then go visit the University of West wherever that they'd never visited before, but they knew that they were turning out students who had the skills and competencies they needed, and then go do a visit to see if they liked what they saw and maybe start hiring different individuals with different backgrounds, but the same educational qualifications that they needed in order to help bring some you know, difference of thinking to Northrop that may actually help them both with their, with their cultural goals in the, in the company, but also with how to break through some particularly sticky engineering challenges. So the more we can have all this information be available, the more you're gonna be able to have, and, and it might be new tools, it might simply be the tools that employers already have on their desks, whether that be Indeed or Workday or any other job search and applicant tracking system to be able to look deeper into what an individual brings and to be able to understand that I may never have heard of that university, but I see the credentials that this person has and I see the competencies and I'm intrigued and I wanna go look at them a little bit better uh, so I think it's going to be a matter of better data and, and better search capabilities, both coming into existing tools. But the beauty about our economy is that somebody's going to come up with a better tool that uses this data that disaggregates and disrupts the marketplace in really good ways because it's going to bring more equity and it's going to bring more diversity into the hiring process. So the timing of what you're doing is good because we need to you know, lay the groundwork as we move into an economy that, where there's much more talent scarcity. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly we're feeling it now in the pinches of the pandemic and trying to get everybody back to work, but just the demographics over time is going to make the competition for the educated very acute. So let me jump a little bit to kind of the pairing with education, which is how do you afford this education? And you are on um, the Hill. Actually, I think I met you initially in a meeting of policymakers that were discussing the financial aid, really, should there be short-term Pell uh, for adults who are trying to continuously upskill? And there were prior attempts in the past where offering financial aid for shorter-term training, you know, like non-degree, created uh, not only chaos, but some abuses. And I, I was wondering if maybe you could just talk through what was seen then and where do you think things are now in terms of that problem? Well, there is no doubt that, that there were two very powerful forces taking place, uh, probably more than two. Uh, but one of them were institutions that absolutely were defrauding 
students and the public by using public dollars to provide access to purportedly high quality education and training that really was nothing of the kind. And there were misuses and abuses in the system by, by a handful. I, it wasn't everybody, but there were too many that were causing real concerns. On the other side, though, and, and one of the pushbacks that, that came was that access to what were then known to be really good programs and providers uh, is not always easy for people that are struggling to tap into the education and training to upskill and reskill to move ahead. And so there was a mismatch between people that needed access to high quality programs that were not available and that space was being filled by bad actors. I think an awful lot of the challenge came down to we really had insufficient data systems to be able to reveal which of those providers were good and bad and which of the credentials and programs they were offering were good and bad and to have really strict limits around quality. And I don't think quality is necessarily a direct factor of time. So I, I get a little uncomfortable with the idea that if you're shorter than six weeks or shorter than 10 weeks or non-credit, that there's somehow an, a clear strike against your offering. Just like I would say, we know of an awful lot of students that go through a four-year program, can't get gainfully employed, jump back into a community college and get a, a specific training that's industry-related and get a great job. So it's not a matter of time or provider necessarily. It's a matter of, do you actually provide high-quality training and education with content and skills that are aligned to the labor market where you're going to get great outcomes? And if you can do that in six weeks, if you can do that in 10 weeks, if you can do that in two years, I think it probably is worth looking at your eligibility for some type of federal funding if you're helping people actually move along their economic pathway. And so I think we need to, and I think the work we're doing is really perfectly aligned with this moment where we need better information that we can make determinations about quality that can then guide our policy about funding and, and eligibility. Well, I'm cheering you on in your work, Scott. I think this will be important infrastructure, data infrastructure for the country. Well, thank you. Uh, there seems to be real momentum in the uh, in the shift from degree-based hiring to skills-based hiring. What's your uh, assessment of where we're at as a country with regards to this practice? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of value, and I think there is a lot of reason to um, be pushing in that direction. I think the big movers you've seen are a lot of the more innovative education and training providers who are able to shift uh, a little more quickly to being able to demonstrate the skills, outcomes of their offerings. And I think you're seeing employers, some of the larger employers that are able to make that shift moving in that direction. And you've seen that announcement, um, you know, from places like Walmart or IBM and, and others who are really interested in that skills-based hiring question. The challenge is in this country has always been when you get into the small and medium-sized employers. You know, that is the bread and butter of our economy. That's the vast majority of employers who employ a majority of the workers in the country. 
And we're not going to be able to see a real success in skills-based hiring, and not just hiring, but really skills-based advancement and, and career development until we are able to have the tools that sit on those CEOs, owners' desks that make this a turnkey, easy-to-do process for them. So having Walmart be able to do this is one thing. Having every mom-and-pop store on Main Street in every American town be able to do this is going to be the proof that, that shows that we're able to do this at scale. And so I, I'm encouraged. I think there are policy moves that are taking us in the right direction, but I'm not going to rejoice until I see that we've been able to solve that economic challenge of having every employer. And, and that's where chambers will come in and business roundtables and employer associations of, of other types who will step up and help develop those, those software and the tools for those, for those small and medium-sized companies. Until then, I think it's a really good idea, but it's not really going to change most people's daily lives. I think that's uh, very insightful about the small, medium companies and what it would take to change their behavior. I mean, the idea of skills-based hiring is that you could be more inclusive. And so mm -hmm. what do you think about, uh, you know, whether the wider acceptance of non-degree credentials can address and advance goals around diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I, I think there's uh, even greater promise there than just about the idea of skills-based hiring in, in general. I think they go hand in hand. But the more we can recognize the fundamental value that a person brings, regardless of the other restrictions around them, access to education may be one of them, then, then we're going to do a much better job of being able to bring real diversity and equity in hiring and into our, into our economy as a whole. We absolutely need to address the education deserts and, and other realities, the, the lack of high-speed internet to give people a chance to take online learning regardless of where they live. Those are, are critical priorities for the country and, and they'll help solve some of this, but more fundamentally, we need to look behind that degree that, that credential into what it actually contains. Scott, are you seeing any great examples of how these alternative paths to acquiring skills, um, where they've been helpful in moving the needle on economic mobility? So I'm not sure that I am, am the most versed right now in, in the latest studies and, and economic analysis about some of those. We've just been so heads down in trying to work with states to, to help them make more of this data public. I think as we're moving really aggressively in states like Indiana and New Jersey and Alabama and Ohio, and as more of that data comes out and we're able to map traditional as well as non-traditional pathways, as we're able, actually, the, the, one of the more exciting things that, that I see is, you know, we, we all have seen the pathways that are on a classroom wall that say, if you're here, just do this and then this and then this, and they're all kind of perfect ladders about how someone should, you know, organize their life to get from here to there. But we know that, that organized patterns don't always work for people and that, you know, life intervenes. So what I'm really excited about is the idea of being able to take Scott and understand Scott just lost his job. Scott has X number of credentials with him. And we need to figure out a completely new customized pathway for Scott that might look something like what's on that classroom wall but really has to be reflecting of what Scott brings, what's around him, 
What can he get to fill some of his skill gaps? And what are the jobs he's looking for that, that he can get access to? And how do those all match up? So it's going to be the ability to mass customize pathways for people that are most appropriate to get them to where they need to go as quickly and efficiently as possible. So I, I think about not just pathways and alternative pathways, but customized, personalized pathways that helps you find your own best success. And, and we'll see more of that as we have more of our state partners getting more data in. I love the word adjacency when speaking about the topic that you just covered. We all want to know, like, what careers are we adjacent to if we were to lose our, our current one, right? And what does it take to go from here to there? By the way, are you thinking about making this data public and including organizations outside the U.S. as well? Yes, all of our data is public and it is, by its definition, open data. We believe that it is a public good and it's really a public necessity in order to have everybody be able to get access to this information anytime, anywhere, um, when they need it the most. So we were founded with the vision of being a, a global uh, standard, as being a global influence we have focused most of our attention up to now on the U.S., but we are actually in active conversations with two or three countries outside of the U.S. who are interested in the value of the kind of technologies that we bring, the value of that open, transparent data system, and recognizing that no one country's economy is isolated. We are all heavily interdependent with each other. Labor flows move very easily. COVID aside, people will still move to good jobs and good opportunities regardless. And we need to be able to connect and understand credentials and competencies and skills regardless of where you earn them. Well, then let me ask you to put your futures hat on and look out into the five to 10 year future uh, where do you see credentialing going over that time horizon, and how does it fit into other trends in employment and education? What do you see, Scott? So I think we'll continue to see a very dynamic credentialing ecosystem. Um, and by that, I mean the beauty about having a million credentials is that there could be too many, but they keep getting created because we have a really dynamic economy. And we've got employers who are constantly innovating, thinking about different ways they should be producing a product or providing a service, more efficient ways with new technologies that require different skills. And those different skills on the job mean that we need to be training people differently to be ready to do that job. So I, I think we're going to continue to see a really robust credential marketplace. I think one of the things that we'll be able to do is to have better insights into which of those credentials actually have great value. And there'll be better decisions made both by, you know, college presidents and system chancellors and budget officers in state legislators deciding, you know, why are we spending money on a credential that isn't really yielding a lot of value? Um, there may be some that they choose to keep because people want that historic architecture certificate. But there'll be others that they get rid of, and I hope we'll see a more rationalized credential marketplace, not necessarily a smaller one, 
one that is dynamic but has better feedback information. I also think we're going to see much more movement to making sure that people, learners and students and workers and job seekers are able to capture and carry their own credential information in you know, similar to what you're trying to see in the health field of personalized um, health records and that people can carry their health records with them regardless of what doctor they're seeing and what hospital system they're in. And you're gonna see the same thing happening in education and training where I don't have to pay $50 to get my transcript from my old high school or, or college or university, it, it's mine. And it's in my own backpack or wallet and I can share it as I choose to which is also gonna be, I think, a tremendous value in the equity and, and diversity space. Because once you've earned it, you've got the information to share. You don't have to go back and pay more money to get the, you know, your own information about yourself. So I think you're gonna see those two things happening, a little bit more rational organization of the credential marketplace and a lot more power put into learners' own hands. I've heard it referred to as a learner and employment record or interoperable learning record. Mm -hmm. I, I actually am looking forward to that future. And I, I would love the algorithm to be able to crunch through all this data and recommend, you know, what adjacent career would be good for Vaughn or would be good for Scott or good for any of our listeners. That would be an interesting world. Yes. And, and there are really good pilot projects and early stage uh, models of some of those happening right now. We just need to learn more about how to make it work best, how to take it to scale, and then how to actually have it be implemented for everybody in the country. Well, that is a wonderful place to end. I've learned so much, Scott. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, it was lots of fun. I really appreciate your inviting me and uh, look forward to getting a chance to continue the conversation. Thank you, Scott Cheney. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm -hmm.